All right, so hey, we're in a series that I'm so excited about. We're calling this series Follow. And so last week we talked about, listen, nobody becomes a Christian uh, because of Jesus' invitation to become a fisher of men. Nobody says, wow, that sounds awesome to me. I'd love to be a fisher of men. So I'm going to say yes to Jesus. No, we say yes to Jesus because we want Jesus to, you know, to uh, heal us or help us. We want him to cure our crisis or save our marriage. We want him to do things for us. And we said, listen, that he knows that about us and that Jesus' grace and mercy cover that. Okay, so it's fine to, to begin to follow Jesus out of our own agenda. But we also said that at some point, we all have to learn how to begin to trade in our own agendas for God's agenda, because his agenda for us is different, you know, than our agenda for ourselves. And so today, what I want to do is I really want to talk about the end game of following. In other words... You know, as a follower of Jesus, what is it that God wants to produce or do in your life? In other words, what kind of person are you going to become if you decide to follow Jesus? And what direction is God going to take you? I mean, where is this thing headed? So, um, you know, I've been a student of Scripture for 40 years, and um, I just think that these three areas are absolutely where the rubber meets the road as it relates to being a follower of Jesus. And, and I'm, I say this a lot, but I don't know why anybody, I don't know why everybody isn't a follower of Jesus. Because, I mean, you're, you're going to hear this today. There, th- th- being a follower of Jesus just has such upside, and again, we're going to see that very, very clearly. So, where is this thing headed? Number one, the first thing is this, a crazy love, crazy love. Uh, in fact, and I mean, listen, it's head-scratching love. It's love that the world does not understand and cannot comprehend. And it flows right out of that command that Jim Johnson just read for us, right? I want to read it again, John 13, verses 34 through 37. Now, Jesus is huddled in a room with his disciples. He's about to suffer, bleed, and die on a cross. And so he's giving them their marching orders. He's saying, here's the way I want you to behave. Uh, when I'm gone. And so here's what he says, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, if Jesus had stopped there, do you know what his disciples would have said? They would have said, Jesus, that's not new. And it wasn't. Uh, but, but, but if they had said that, Jesus would have said, no, stop, because I'm not done yet. I want you to love one another, but this is a raise the bar kind of love. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Uh, So this is so, so important. Um, He's just saying, look, I don't want you to love other people the way that you would want to be loved. I don't even want you to love other people as you love yourself. Because by the way, nobody even loves themselves perfectly, right? He says, no, I want you to love one another as I have loved you, as I set the standard. And we all know how that turned out for Jesus, right? We all know how Jesus loved them and loves us. And he expects us to love 
in exactly the same way. And Jesus also makes it clear that the mark of a disciple, the distinguishing thing that's meant to set us apart as followers or disciples of Jesus is not a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker on the back of your car. It's not a cross around your neck, but it is love. It is the way that we treat one another that is meant to identify and mark us us as followers of Jesus. Now listen, this command is not a hallmark moment. This is not gushy sentimentality. This is a command that is gritty and difficult and hard. In fact, it is so gritty that this command, this one command, is going to be the single hardest thing that you do every single day. And I'm going to make a bold statement. I do not have this kind of love in me, and neither do you. None of us do. There's not a person in the room on their own that has this kind of love. And listen, there is not enough self-discipline in the world to give you this kind of love. There is not enough self-talk to produce this kind of love in you. There is no amount of counseling. There is no amount of information that will make you this kind of person or this kind of lover. The only way to love as Jesus loves is to stay close and connected to Jesus. He has to give it to you. He has to give it to me every single day. It can only come by him and through him. And so I want to just give you some insight into my life. Every single day when I wake up, I pray a little prayer. And I want to challenge some of you to begin to pray this very same prayer every single day. It's one of the first things that I say to my heavenly father every single morning. I say, God, I want you to help me love well everybody that I lock eyes with today, everybody I say hello to, everybody I'm going to meet with. Hey, God, I have this meeting in the morning. Help me love them well. Hey, God, I have this thing in the afternoon. Help me love that group of people well. See, I just, I just want to challenge you. That prayer will begin to shape and change what, what you think is important every single day of the week. And again, I just want to challenge you to begin that, that prayer. When I walk into a grocery store, I'll say, God, help me love the cashier well today. Let me look for an opportunity to say an encouraging word to this person or to that person. And there's a great story that I think illustrates how important it is that we get this right so a man was being tailgated by a stressed out woman uh, on State Road 9. Suddenly the light turned yellow just in front of him. So he did the right thing. You know, he stopped, at the, he stopped there at the light, even though he could have beaten the light by gunning it and accelerating through the intersection. But the, the woman that was tailgating him was late for work. She was furious. So she began to rant. She began to honk her horn. And uh, she knew she was definitely going to be late for work now. But as she was still in mid rant, she heard a tap on her window and looked up to see the face of a very serious police officer. 
The officer ordered her to exit her car with her hands up. He took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. After a couple of hours, a policeman approached the cell and opened the door. She was escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting for her, you know, with her personal effects. So he said, I'm, I'm so sorry for the mistake, ma'am. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, flipping off the guy in front of you and cursing him at the top of your lungs. And at the same time, I noticed the what would Jesus do bumper sticker, the I love my church license plate holder, and the follow me to Sunday school bumper sticker, as well as the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the back of your car. So naturally, I assumed you'd stolen the car. See, now listen, that joke would be even funnier if we didn't do things like that almost every single day, wouldn't it? I mean, it just, it's so convicting how short we can fall so quickly. And here's why that's so tragic, because when we fail to love well, not only do we fail to prove that we are Jesus' disciples, but we will actually repel people from our Savior, our Lord. We will. Now, um, here's the thing. I just want to give you a framework, a way to think about this command to love one another. So this command is our New Testament, New Covenant marching orders. So listen, how many of you played sports or athletics when you were growing up? Yeah, any kind. So it doesn't matter what sport you play. Uh, It could be football, it could be baseball, it could be basketball, it could be soccer, it could be any sport. In the beginning especially, the coach always says the same thing. Anybody want to guess what, no matter, it just transcends all sports. It starts with the word keep. Really? Are you sure you played sports? Yeah, keep your eyes on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball. This command is the ball that Christians need to keep their eye on. Keep your eye on the ball. Don't get distracted by anything else. This is the New Testament marching orders that Jesus left for us. Now, In the passage that Jim read, there were a lot of one another's. It said things like this, you know, honor one another, pray for one another, care for one another. There are over 50 of those commands in the New Testament. And every single one of those commands flow out of this overarching command of Jesus found in John 13. So in other words, they are specific applications of what love looks like. So in other words, what does love look like? Well, it looks like when praying for somebody else. Well, what does love look like? Well, it looks like when somebody honors another person. What does love look like? Well, it looks like when someone encourages, you know, encourage one another. So it's a, all of those commands flow out of this one singular command. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is that we do this. So all those one another's are just simply ways that we can better love one another. They tell us what love looks like in very specific situations. So what if in the name of love, we began to one another, one another better? 
I'm going to say that again. So what if in the name of love, we begin, we want another, one another better? It's so important that we get this right. And then finally, there's uh, another verse I just want to do talk about related to love. This is out of Romans 13. It says this, love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, the word fulfill means to bring to a designated end. Well, how does the law of love bring the law to a designated end? Well, because if I love you, I'm not going to steal from you. If I love you, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to be deceitful. I mean, we know lying undermines and destroys trust. So in the name of love, I'm not going to lie to you. If I love you, I'm not going to put my hands on your wife. See? But what's the ball? What are you fixing your eyes on? You're not fixing your eyes on the Ten Commandments. You're fixing your eyes on the law of love. And and by loving, you are fulfilling the law. See, and it's so funny when Jesus said, look, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Abolishing the law. So he wanted to be very, very clear with them. No, these are ball is this command to love one another. This is why one of Jesus' followers, a man who was a violent persecutor of the church, a man who wanted to stamp out Christianity in the beginning, but ended up becoming one. This was a man named Paul. Here's what he said about love, how, how important it was. In the book of Galatians, he said this, the only thing that counts Let me say that again in case you missed it. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Faith in Jesus that gets lived out every day in real relationships with real people. It's so, so important. So important. Love fulfills the law because it keeps the law. So let me ask you a question. Who in your life, no, I, wanna, I don't want to start there. I want to tell you just one last observation. Not only did Jesus command us to love one another, not as we would want to be loved, but as he loved us, but he said that was the way people were going to know that we were disciples. Now listen, this, this was true of me and this was true of my life. Uh, that's my story. And some of you know my story. The problem with the story is, you know, especially if you've been someplace for almost three decades, people have heard it, right? But I just want to, I just got to tell you, when I was in high school, I was wayward. My mom had passed away when I was in middle school. My, my father was so lost in his grief that uh, I had a ton of freedom in middle school and high school. And I took I took full advantage of every bit of that freedom. And so there was a family, my best friend, his mom and dad, they recognized, they, they, rec- they saw how wayward I was, how, how much guidance I needed. And so they took me in and it was their love. I saw up close and personal, not only their love for one another, I saw it, but I felt their love for me. And by the way, it was a love that I disappointed. I didn't, there were a few times where I failed to live up to their expectations. And so I saw a patient, you know, love is patient. I saw that in them. And it was that love 
that made me want to be a follower of Jesus. It was that love that identified them as his disciples. So here's the question for you. Who in your life needs to see and feel that kind of love? Who in your life needs to see and feel that kind of love? And, and, if, and whoever, whatever that name is, you know, invite Jesus to help you love them every day with his love. So crazy love is the first mark of a disciple. It's the distinguishing mark of a disciple. But here's the second one. No fear. No fear. Isn't that incredible to say in a culture of fear? in a world that's filled with fear, and yet if God's going to take us anywhere, we're going to be a people. This no fear is a place where Jesus always takes his followers. He takes us to a place where our faith in God is so big and so strong. He takes us to a place where we're so personally secure in the Father's love that even in the midst of circumstances where it looks like God has forgotten us, maybe we even feel like his eyes are no longer fixed on us, we hear him whisper, fear not, I'm with you. I'm here. My eyes are fixed on you. My affections are for you. See, th the message of Jesus was not this. Don't be afraid because I won't let anything bad happen to you. That was not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus was don't be afraid when bad things happen to you. And there's a big, big difference in those two messages. So let's look at uh, John 14. Jesus, again, is talking to his disciples, and he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. In this world, you will have trouble. That's Jesus' prediction for your life and mine. I have a son who's a meteorologist with the National Weather Service. And one of the great things about being a meteorologist is nobody expects you to get it right. Right? So there's all kinds of grace. But if Jesus were forecasting the weather for your life, here's what he would say. There is a 100% chance that a storm is going to blow into your life today. And if it doesn't blow into your life today, it'll happen tomorrow. There's a 100% chance it will. But what's he saying? Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid when that happens. See, the message of Jesus was don't be afraid when bad things happen. That is confidence in God. It's a confidence that is so big, that is so sure of God's presence, that is so sure, certain of God's love, that is so uh, optimistic about God's uh, protection that it actually overwhelms and overshadows our fear and what Jesus would say is look I'm going to take you not to a place of denial having a lack of fear isn't denial but to a place where your faith in me and your faith in your heavenly father is so confident that even in the midst of circumstances that should terrify you you will not be afraid over and over and over and over and over again. 
You don't need to be afraid because your confidence is not in your circumstances, but the one who is with you in those circumstances. In fact, look at this, Hebrews 13, 6. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And even Peter said this, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. See, our confidence is meant to be in the one who controls and knows our name and shields our soul. Our confidence in God is meant to be so big that even in the midst of circumstances where everyone else is afraid and pulling their hair out in clumps, we're secure. We know fear. See, disciples of Jesus are meant to be identified. This is where following Jesus will uh, ultimately lead you. And I'll tell you what, when you look at the lives of his early disciples who were in the beginning, you know, they were, they were doubters, they were deniers, they were fearers. I mean, they ran for their lives. They all scattered when Jesus was arrested. I mean, early on, honestly, most of those men were cowards. But over a three-year period of time with Jesus especially after his resurrection, they became fearless. I mean, you talk about courage. Read through the book of Acts. It's an incredible transformation. And that transformation is meant to happen in every man, woman, and child that would be a follower of Jesus Christ. So when hard stuff blows into your life, your Savior says, do not be afraid because I am with you. Do not be afraid because I am with you. I know, but don't be afraid. I know but I'm with you. In this world, you are going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world, and if you follow me, I will lead you to a place where your faith overshadows and overcomes all your fears. So follow me because that's where we're headed. Now, I want to tell you a story that I think illustrates this marvelously. Um, it's about a little girl named Ruby Bridges. That's her behind me. So Ruby grew up in New Orleans um, several decades ago. And when she was six years old, a federal judge said that the schools in that city had to open their doors to African-American children. At that time, white children went to one school, black children went to another school. So the day when little children, uh, well, so, so almost all the white parents decided that if they had to let black children into the school, they were going to keep their children out. They also said that if any black children actually came to school, that they and their families would be in a lot of trouble. So, so, both, so a lot of white kids and a lot of black kids stayed home from school, uh, except for Ruby. Every day, six-year-old Ruby Bridges would kiss her mom goodbye and march off to school. Uh, only she had two federal marshals walking in front of her and two federal marshals walking behind her. And she needed those marshals because every day when she would arrive at school, she would have to walk through a hostile and a heckling crowd that threatened and cussed her. And so that angry crowd of mostly adults shook their fists 
and cussed a six-year-old little girl. They yelled at her, they threatened her, they cussed her, and even threatened to harm her family if she kept coming back to school. But every morning at 10 minutes to 8, Ruby Bridges walked past all those people with her head up and her eyes straight ahead. She walked into that almost empty school building to learn. And then she went home through a smaller but still equally hostile crowd every single day. Now, what's amazing about her is not just that she kept coming back. What's really amazing about her is how she did it. Her white school teacher described what uh, she saw when Ruby walked into school. This is what she said. Think about this being a six-year-old little girl. She said, I saw a woman spit at Ruby. Ruby smiled at her. I saw a man shake his fist at her, and Ruby smiled at him. Then she walked up the stairs and she stopped at the building and she turned and looked at the crowd who were cursing and yelling at her and she smiled one more time. Do you know what she told one of the marshals her teacher writes? She told him that she prays for these people. The ones in the mob every single night before she goes to sleep. A six-year-old little girl kneeling by the side of her bed. God bless those people who hate me. Bless those people who spit at me. Bless those people who cuss me. Help them, God. And then the next morning, this little six-year-old gets up, kisses her mom and dad at goodbye, and walks to school with two U.S. Marshals, one in front, two in, two in front and two behind. So this was so extraordinary that there was a Harvard psychiatrist by the name of Robert Coles who wanted to know what would create that kind of courage in another human being. So he left uh, Harvard and went to New Orleans to interview she and her mom and dad, her, her family. And when he got there, he was stunned to find out that conventional psychiatric language could not explain this little girl and her courage. So he wrote a book called, from that interview, called The Moral Life of Children. And in this book, this unbelieving, non-following, Harvard-educated psychiatrist, here's what he wrote, how, here's how he described where Ruby's courage came from. He said, if I had to offer an explanation, I think it would start with the religious tradition of black people, which is of far greater significance than many white observers have tended to allow. In home after home, I've seen Christ's teachings, Jesus Christ's life connected to the lives of black children by their parents in an amazing way. Such a religious tradition connects with a child's sense of what is most important and what matters. As anyone knows, he writes, who's been in a black church and seen the look of pain there give way to a look of hope. So, so, this Harvard psychiatrist leaves Harvard, goes to New Orleans to study the courage of a little girl. And do you know what he essentially said? He said, I think it's Jesus. I think that's where that courage came from. I, I, just, I just think it's Jesus. And it was. You know, Ruby, was, Ruby knew she was a six-year-old year little girl that did not go to school alone. 
It wasn't just that she had two marshals walking in front of her and behind her. See, this was something bigger. This was something that no government, no political or human power, that, this was something that none of those things could do for her or for you or for me. Listen, there is no amount of human strength or courage that can transform a heart like that. It takes Jesus. Ruby knew Jesus, and that was so important, and I'll tell you why it was so important, because Jesus knew all about facing hostile crowds. He knew what it was like to have someone spit at him and mock him and threaten him and even beat him because he didn't have the protection of federal marshals just for doing the right thing. And he never turned back. He never stopped loving the people, the very people that were so hostile to him. He, like Ruby, prayed for them and even went further by willingly suffering and dying in their place. That's our Jesus. That's our Savior. What's not to love? I don't understand why everybody isn't a follower of Jesus. And this is so important in a world characterized by so much fear. What should mark a disciple? Crazy love. What should mark a disciple? No fear. No fear. What should mark a disciple? Good fruit. Good fruit. Now, when I talk about good fruit, I'm talking about two kinds of fruit. There is a fruit that your heavenly father wants to produce in you. And then there is a fruit that represents the deeds that you do, the kind, of, uh, the kind of acts that you engage in, the kind of words that you speak. So uh, the first kind of fruit is a kind of fruit that your heavenly Father wants to produce in you, the kind of person, the, the way that he wants you to think. And here's how that fruit is described in the New Testament. Notice that it's called the fruit of the Spirit. It's not called my fruit or your fruit. or the fr- It's not called the fruit of self-discipline. It's not called the fruit of self-talk. It's not called the fruit of uh, education. It's a fruit that can only be produced and born by the Holy Spirit of God, staying and living close to Jesus every day. But I'll talk more about that in a minute. The fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy, peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. I mean, who doesn't want that character list to reign and rule in their life? I know I sure do. Now, listen, you just need to know this truth, truth of a, you know, uh, Yeah, I'm just going to come out here. So listen, I am not that kind of person. Those characteristics don't flow freely through my mind unless I'm connected to the vine, unless I'm connected to Jesus, unless I'm in God's word daily. Listen, you get me just a couple of days out from God's word, and here's some words that start to to define my inner world. Irritable impatient, discouraged, disappointed. See, it isn't just that Jesus saves us from our sin. He saves us from ourselves. 
He saves us from ourselves because we become those things apart from him. Apart from him, people are just in my way, right? Apart from him, people are there to use. Apart from him, people are there for me and what they can do for me. And Jesus comes along and says, look, that's not the way you're to think about and love and treat people. And then there is a fruit that Jesus doesn't just want to produce in you. It's a fruit that he wants to use and produce through you. He wants it to come out of you. Here's how that's described in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Just as a phone will die unless it's plugged in. Just as a car can't run without a battery. You can't live without me. Live with me. Draw from me. Like a, so a vine, you know, draws from a branch in the same way, friends. The only way. Listen, newsflash, you guys already know this. The Christian life is impossible to live on your own. It just is. It is absolutely impossible and futile on your own. But the Christian life is a banquet if Jesus is at the center of it, if you're drawing from him, if your eyes are fixed on him, recognizing that his eyes are fixed on you. Listen, abiding is the secret to the Christian life. It is where the rubber meets the road. It is how we love with a crazy love. It is how we stand tall and courageous. It is through our connection, dependence upon our Jesus, drawing from him. So that's it. Where is this thing going to take me if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus? I'm going to become more loving. I'm going to become way less fearful. And I'm going to, my life is going to ripple out unto eternity. The, the space between my ears is going to be so much more peaceful and serene. And my actions toward other people are going to impact lives, encourage others, change other people's eternities. That's what good fruit is. What's not to like about any of that? The Christian life, there's no better way to live and there's certainly no better way to die than that as a follower. So let me ask you a question today. It's a question I'm going to ask periodically in this service. Are you a follower of Jesus? Or are you just playing church? Like, are, are you a follower of Jesus? Or are you just killing time? Are you a follower of Jesus? Or are you just wasting your life? Jesus, the miracle of this series is that Jesus is still calling men and women to follow him today because he didn't stay in the grave. He rose to live in you and to live in me. He rose to be our source, 
our connection to our Heavenly Father. So are you following him? Let me pray for you and for me. I'm going to invite the team to come up and then I'll set us up for what we're going to do next. But I just want to, I just want to pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're still calling men and women to follow you. Thank you that um, over 40 years ago that you issued that invitation to me. Thank you for changing my life forever. Thank you for not only saving me from my sin, but Lord Jesus, for saving me from myself, my own irritability, my own impatience, my own disappointment and discouragement, all that stuff that starts to flow so freely um, when I'm not you know, tethered to you. God, I know there are men and women out there and they're feeling some of those things. I pray for them. I pray that as they find refuge in you and in a relationship with you, that um, you would meet them and that your grace would be sufficient for them and that you'd begin to not only save them from their sin, but that you would also save them from themselves as well. And so we count on you to do that good work in us and through us. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we ask it. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, so we're going to take communion. Um, communion is how we remember that we're tethered to Jesus, that we need him, that we need to draw from him and out of him. So uh, you know the drill, right? We come down these aisles. We also have communion tables set up in the back if you'd prefer to go that direction. So you either go back or you come forward and then you're going to swing around and go back to your seat there. If you'd like, um, we love to see folks take communion here at the altar. So uh, you're welcome to do that with your family as well. Sometimes that can be a little bit more intimate. Um, so just want to talk a little bit about the why of communion. Jesus said we do it to remember him, to remember that he died to pay the penalty for our sin to remember that he rose to give us power to live above that every single day. So as you eat the bread, I want you to, to remember that Jesus' body was offered up for you. As you drink uh, from the cup, you're remembering that Jesus' blood was shed, not for your neighbor, but for you. So Heavenly Father, help us approach uh, communion with hearts that are engaged with what you've done and how we should live as a result. Lord Jesus, thank you that, that even today you're still calling men and women to follow you. Help us to follow well today. Lord, would you help this group of people, would you help me to love well today? Would you help this group of people be courageous today? No fear. And God, would you convict us about our daily need to abide with you? And so God, together today, we remember your body offered up for us, your blood spilled for us. And we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.